You're listening to the Homelessness Services Association podcast. This is an audio-only version of one of our webinars addressing the challenges of frontline and shelter work during the coronavirus crisis. If you'd like to view the video or look at the slides, please go to hsa-bc.ca. Well, good morning and welcome to HSABC's webinar, Engaging with the Provincial Guidelines for Encampment. My name is Sarah Kift and I'm your host for today. And I've worked in the frontline nonprofit sector for over 15 years, including in Vancouver's downtown east side at Carnegie Community Centre. And I develop and host webinars for HSABC as well as do some other things in the sector. So when you're using the question section, that's me who you'll be chatting to. And I'll do my best to share your questions and comments with our panelists as they come up. All right. So I'm going to run a couple of polls here. I'm actually going to run three rapid fire. And this is just to give our um, panelists um, just a sense of where you're at with the material today. So the first one is, have you reviewed the province's draft encampment guidelines? Uh, yes, no, uh, or maybe in part. And so you can take a minute to vote on that. Um, they are included here as part of the handout section. Um, you can download those in PDF format. Um, we did send them out last week to everybody who was part of our uh, webinar talking with the, the province about the guidelines. 25% of us have read them and 67% of us have done some reading them. So that's helpful to know. Thank you very much. All right, poll number two. Uh, did you find these guidelines helpful in guiding your work with tent cities? Generally helpful, generally unhelpful, or other? And if you chose other, just type into the question section about what your thoughts are there. So about 63% chose helpful, 25% said unhelpful, and 13% said other. And we have some folk on the line who are just new in their positions or new to a role, and so they're here to learn about things. Um, so thank you for answering that. All right, and poll number three, what category best describes your engagement with tent cities? So you can select all that apply here. Do you provide outreach services? Do you work in shelter housing for people leaving tent cities? Are you a community member or advocate for tent cities? Um, do you work on tent city policy? Are you a bylaw officer, park ranger, or other enforcement? And you can also type into the question section if none of these apply to you. We have a limit on the number of poll answers we can do in this platform. So um, I know that there's lots of different uh, roles out there and tent cities seem to be something that we're all uh, engaged with uh, in our in our work these days, especially during the pandemic. All right, final poll results here. So about 40% of us provide outreach services. Obviously the numbers don't necessarily add up here. <laughs> uh, a lot of us work in shelters and housing for people who are leaving tent cities. Um, some of us are uh, well, I'm sure all of us are supportive community, community members, and some of us are working on tent city policy. So I hope that that gives our panelists just a sense of where our attendees are coming from today. Now to the good stuff. So here's Chrissy, Christopher, and Anna. 
I'm going to introduce them, but they're also going to introduce themselves as we go along. So Chrissy Brett is an Indigenous activist who's been involved in founding, organizing and running a number of tent cities throughout BC. She fights for the rights of Indigenous homeless peoples to occupy unceded lands. She also stands with homeless settler folks who are forced to live outside. In May 2019, she founded Camp Namagans, which has since become known as Namagans Nation. Um, I apologize if I don't pronounce that correctly. The first urban reserve in Canada. Originally from the Nooksock Nation, Christy founded Namagans Nation in Chrissy, sorry, Chrissy, in recognition that many Indigenous peoples will never know their nations due to the history of the 60s scoop and other forms of displacement. She was a key organizer at Oppenheimer Tent City and a founding member of Namgans 2.0 Crab Park Tent City. We also have Christopher Livingston with us today. He's a mental health outreach worker and founding member of the Western Aboriginal Harm Reduction Society, a director of the Aboriginal Front Door Society, and a previous member of the Vancouver Aboriginal Community Policing Centre. Christopher Livingston is his colonial name. I'm not going to try and pronounce your traditional name. I'll let you do that, Chris. Um, his work has included has included doing harm reduction, cultural safety, and other supports to Indigenous peoples living in tent cities, including at Oppenheimer Park. He is also a seasoned, a seasoned tent city resident, having lived in the Wood Squat in 2002, Victory Square in 2003, Crab Park in 2003, and Anita Place in 2019. And Anna Cooper is a staff lawyer at the Pivot Legal Society, where she focuses on Pivot's homeless people's rights campaign. She is a settler lawyer working with the colonial legal tradition to try and advance human rights. And much of her work has focused on the rights and needs of people living in tent cities. I just want to say welcome to all of you today. And I apologize for the fumbled introductions. I know that you're going to do a much better job of introducing yourself. So thank you for being here today, everyone. Thank you, Sarah. Um, this is Anna here. Um, happy to have you all on the line. Okay, so we'll start uh, first with um, a land acknowledgement from um, Pivot Legal Society, which is the organization I work with. Uh, our office is located on the stolen lands of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh Nations. We are grateful to Indigenous peoples for their continuous relationships with their lands. We recognize that the legal tools that we use are colonial legal tools, which have been weaponized against Indigenous people since colonizations, colonization and continue to disadvantage Indigenous peoples and ignore the existence of Indigenous peoples' own laws. We are committed to learning to work in solidarity as accomplices and shifting the colonial default. And Chris Livingstone. Great. Hi. Hello, everybody. My name is Okskota is my Nishka name. It means cutting the branch towards the, the water. And I just also like to acknowledge that I'm on the unceded territory of the Musqueam, the Squamish and the Tsleil-Waututh nations. And I just, uh, no matter where we are, I, I, I like to think that uh, that we can do more for reconciliation and, and the acknowledgement is a, a, a small starting point and I look forward to interacting in, with this panel. Thank you. There we go. Okay, so just quickly, what are we talking about today? 
Um, so it sounds like most of you have at least some basic familiarity uh, with the document that was released through another webinar last week. Um, this is also included under the handout section. If you go to your kind of go to webinar control panel, um, might be helpful for some folks just to download that and have that to look at as we will be kind of going through it during this presentation. Um, it's a local government homeless encampment response resource. Um, currently, it sounds like it was created primarily by uh, various government ministries and some public health actors. Um, there's also significant pieces at the end, especially around COVID, uh, that appear to have been kind of imported from guidelines that were recently released by our public health officer, Bonnie Henry. Um, that uh, those guidelines from Bonnie Henry and BC CDC are also in your handout section. Um, based on the webinar last week, it sounds like with the rise of tent cities across BC, the province started receiving uh, more and more requests for assistance and, and questions. They created an internal document, um, and this is kind of the product of an internal document that has been circulated for some time. Uh, to date, there has been no engagement with um, tent city residents, whether current or previous, as far as we're aware, or even with kind of out advocates or outreach um, services who are regularly working in these spaces. Uh, and the province has said that they are looking for uh, more input uh, in developing these guidelines going forward. And just a quick note that the um, the PHO uh, document, uh, they worked with the creators of the guidelines. So those were based on the provincial guidelines. Um, okay. Yeah. Thank you. Oh, so went in the other direction. Yes. <laughs> no, I just, I saw the PHO ones first, so I, I misunderstood. Thank you. Um, yeah. So Sarah's already done a great job of introducing all of us, but I thought we could just give a, uh, a bit more information about our connection to working with tent cities specifically before we get into um, the rest of the presentation. So, Chris? Great. Hello again, everybody. My name is Chris Livingstone, and I work with the Vancouver Aboriginal Community, Community Policing as a, an outreach worker in the downtown east side of Vancouver, and as well as I volunteer on a number of director as a director for a number of organizations, the Western Aboriginal Harm Reduction Society and the Aboriginal Front Door Society. Uh, I'm a, a citizen of the Nishka Nation from the from northern BC or right from where Alaska and BC meet. Uh, and as well, I, I've lived in a lot of tent cities over the years. Uh, I suffer from, I, I'm an organizer, but I also suffer from being chronically homeless. Uh, I was homeless uh, as recently as within two years. So I... Uh, I'm hoping that we can provide some sort of information or talk and sort of if these are meant to be guidelines, then uh, I hope that we can get some tools for for different communities. Chrissy. Um, thanks. My name's um, Chrissy and I'm lucky to be a visitor here on the Tsleil-Waututh, Musqueam and Squamish Nation um, and doing support over now three different tent cities. <clears throat> and 
my background is um, being a New Elk Nation member and then adopted out to a settler family who own kin to the English, Scottish, and Welsh, and um, continue to have them be a big part of myself and my children's lives. So um, being able to bridge some of the issues between our colonial governments and Indigenous people and homeless people who've been displaced from their national connections was something that was easily morphed from child welfare advocacy, which was my background, and um, the inadequacies with child welfare law and Indigenous child welfare. Um, that a lot of that like sort of morphed into homelessness, how many the percentage of our kids in care that end up being homeless and indigenous or non, um, and how many people who, if they've been supported in being a part of their children's lives, may not be in the situation of being homeless as they are. So I I ended up culturally supporting a couple of tent cities in Victoria and then started co-founding them to ensure that there was an Indigenous-led process that could really build on the community that already exists within tent cities way before I get there. That I think just needs to be translated with people's transferable skills that are already being used and utilized in a tent city. And if you actually come in and support, it can only enhance and empower people to become safer um, in an unsafe, unsanitary condition. So you can see the variance of the ability to support people in different tent cities based on community involvement and support, but never really up until lately government resources. So. Thank you, Christy. And um, I'm Anna Cooper. I'm with Pivot Legal Society. I don't have uh, lived experience of homelessness. Um, my context in this work uh, began with Anita Place Tent City, uh, where I was part of the legal representation for two years. I have also helped advocate for a number of other tent cities, um, both in course and through advocacy with government for the provision of resources. Um, and so I primarily am here to kind of provide a bit of um, the kind of legal context around tent cities and why we're where we are today. So a few kind of goals for today. Um, we're hoping to provide some initial feedback on these guidelines from people who, as you've just heard, either have lived experience in tent cities, have provided outreach in those spaces, and or have advocated against eviction. Uh, we want to help inform your own potential feedback to uh, the province as they are currently soliciting input on their draft guidelines, and also more generally to inform how you and your agencies are engaging with tent cities, um, you know, while recognizing that um, all encampments are different and have different needs. Um, we want people to think a little more critically about what is it that the people who are actually living in these spaces want from you um, when we come from that perspective um, and not necessarily from a provincial policy um, enforcement and management perspective. Start by naming um, a few good things that we found in the guidelines. Chris? Great. So it, it wasn't all bad and, and there's so uh, recognizing the need to uphold the rights of indigenous people 
and considering cultural safety, uh, uh, recognizing the importance of tent cities to to people who living in them, shelter, sense of a community, and a point of contact for support. Um, and it acknowledges that the court action, using court action to close a camp or bylaws to limit people who are homeless, do not does not solve a problem of the lack of housing and supports for vulnerable people. And it acknowledges peer-based networks in the solutions and names that housing is the answer. But the guidelines um, don't actually follow through um, in supporting uh, some of these kind of more positive things. They don't actually give concrete steps on actualizing them or resourcing them. Um, so kind of as we go through, we're going to talk about a few kind of big picture problems with the guidelines, a few of the myths that they seem to be based on, and ultimately, we want to provide some better best practices. So that's kind of the direction of the rest of this webinar. So to begin with, um, while there was some acknowledgement um, during the webinar itself last week of the role the province has played and the history of colonialism has played in creating the current crisis, it's not in the guidelines themselves. So it's still kind of framed as this kind of pro-social um, thing that government is doing for people who are homeless, as opposed to being written from the perspective of government having created the crisis in the first place um, through policies and through divesting from social housing and welfare and other benefits. Um, another concern that we had with the guidelines was that they're internally contradictory and confusing. Um, Chris, is that something you can comment on a bit? Sure, yes. So a little bit about the language of the, the, the document I, in it. So I read the first statement, people are experiencing homelessness can find shelter and a sense of community and security staying in encampments and tent cities so to me that part it, it seems like that's great people there's an acknowledgement that when when people are in trouble that they get together and they they can provide the the supports uh, and they acknowledge that that tent cities and encampments are a good place for point of contact for for government or for outreach but then when the document also in the next statement, it says that the province does not view encampments as suitable and it admits that they can create danger. So, so right off the hop, it, it seems like that, that uh, it's, it, it acknowledges that people come together and this is what they do, but, uh, but they're not, it, it's not really the, the, the province is, they don't view them as, as safe. So is, is that a reason to, to not help at all? Eh? Yeah. And a few other things that we found were, um, you know, naming at one point that police are problematic, but police are included um, as a stakeholder in every kind of core piece of decision making that's listed in these guidelines. Um, there's this kind of saying that displacement is harmful, but um, as we'll discuss more kind of throughout the guidelines, there's a whole bunch of um, a laundry list of various excuses to displace people. So they're not kind of clearly taking a non-displacement position. Uh, and it's also unclear whether there's any resources or support available for people who are trying to enact the more positive parts of these guidelines. Um, 
Uh, another thing is that just on a bigger picture level, which we'll get into more detail, uh, these guidelines are not rights-based or decolonial in any significant sense. Chrissy, do you want to comment on that more right now or a bit later? Oh, sorry. Um, yeah, I just think that it seems as though without acknowledging the community that is acknowledged sometimes in individual organizations or within individuals of even policing bylaw or other housing organizations that become allies, that until the government recognizes that residents need to be a part of the stakeholders conversation in, in some sort of sense, that it will always be this colonial top-down managed approach that isn't working in supportive housing or in any type of the mental health housing that is managed rather than engaged. And when you look at a lot of the real sort of peer-based Indigenous and non-programs that are based on a cultural engagement process of people's choice to be a part of something, rather than being forced to be a part of something are things that become really successful. And to prevent managed encampments just becoming FEMA camps, instead looking at things through an Indigenous lens, if not sort of Indigenous-led for places that may not have people that are able to step up right now to create that Indigenous-led process that it something that's absolutely necessary if there's actually going to be permanent provincial guidelines. Um, and those are the things that individuals can choose to be an ally or they can choose to be one of those people that are holding that government line of holding people down rather than holding people up. I just wanted to chime in too. And, and, and so what I was mentioning earlier as well, uh, so in the document, it, the province actually claims responsibility for for the health and safety of people that are in tents and encampments. But if they refuse to actually support tent cities and encampments, which are could be the, the tool or the apparatus for getting people into housing, uh, then I, I just don't understand. It's kind of like a skirting skirting their responsibility. I guess, and lastly, I'd just like to comment that currently in Vancouver, with the only elected parks board in Canada, that the lowest level of government is one of the first places that has actively chosen not to evict Indigenous people and their allies from unceded Indigenous land, and the lowest level of government with the least amount of resources for people, period, <laughs> because they're just a parks board is the one that we've seen that has had the most amount of humanity um, when looking at a municipal response, provincial response, or federal response that just evicted people from unceded Indigenous land with 100 cops at 5.30 in the morning. Yeah, which kind of leads us into our next point, um, which are there's kind of two 
uh, foundational myths that seem to run through these guidelines. Um, the first one is that tent cities create harm. Uh, and so in the top of this page in that box, there's a, a quote directly from the guidelines um, saying encampments, especially those entrenched through protest and court actions can become dangerous for people experiencing homelessness. Camp residents face fire, safety, health and sanitation risks, as well as barriers to health services. Um, those requiring addictions and mental health support, youth, women and Indigenous peoples, all of whom represent the a disproportionate percentage of people experiencing homelessness are especially vulnerable. So the way that this is written is it makes it sound like the tent city is actually responsible for um, creating conditions of unsafety for people who are homeless. And there's an implication here that um, eviction alone could be safer uh, based on how certain tent cities are not safe. And that's a really problematic myth that we see held up by government a lot. Um, Chris, what are some ways in which tent cities can actually make people safer? So 100% tent cities and encampments are created for people to be safer. They're, they support hygiene, they support security, they support health. Uh, there's when you people know that when they're by themselves that they're at risk to to be traumatized or be on the receiving end of violence. So getting together in a herd is is always helpful. Uh, it, it's great. Uh, people can get services to people when they're collectivized in tent cities. Outreach people, governments, outreach can can get to the people. They know where they are. They're not hard to find. They're not invisible anymore. Uh, when you're, if you're homeless and you're by yourself, uh, you can be subject to, to uh, sexual abuse or assault, uh, overdose. Uh, if you're using in the alleys or in the parks or by yourself or in your hotel room, your SRO room has no guest fees, then if you overdose, you die. If you're in the park using with your friends and, and people that are there, then you're, you, have, you have a chance to live. So collectivizing it, tent cities are great because they, they create the, the sense of family and, and the, the collective impact that and support that we all need. Um, thank you, Chris. And um, Chrissy, so obviously it's undeniable that people can face risks and harm in tent cities. You know, every time there's a tent city, uh, media and government will often spend a lot of time reporting on instances of violence or harm that people experience. Um, my question for you is, do tent cities actually create those risks? No, I think those risks, I mean, are far greater when you're out on your own in a current culture that has criminalized um, drug use or like drugs um, that creates this organized crime that creates people who are really vulnerable for all of these risks and that when you look at the fire safety concerns, when you live in a tent on your own, there are people that I've known that are still living with the scars and the burns that 
they got because they were in a tent all alone. And in tent cities, there are volunteers and community organizations that ensure that there are things like fire extinguishers that are donated and utilized and never government sort of resourced except for one tent city that I can think of that actually eventually provided fire extinguishers. But really, people are able to be safer by creating a place. The community is the ones that are holding up Canadians' most vulnerable people that Canada's forgotten about. Yeah, and just a final point on that. Um, you know, there's no uh, social science or other research that supports this, like, often kind of stated claim that tent cities create harm. Um, the little bit of research that's out there actually supports that in general, tent cities lead to a reduction in surrounding crime. Um, what often confuses people is that because tent cities are hated by government as symbols, like very public symbols of their failure, there's often a very concerted effort to find and report on everything that goes wrong in a tent city. Um, all those harms exist outside of tent cities. Uh, all that lack of safety exists. It's just not focused on in the same way. Uh, the data isn't um, collected and publicized because uh, government can let it go when it's just happening to people who are scattered and hidden throughout their cities in a way that they can't when it's uh, visible and public in one place. Um, the other core myth that runs through these guidelines is um, the province stating that they do not prioritize displacement. Um, the kind of right during the introduction section, they say the provincial response to encampments does not prioritize displacement or enforcement. Um, and while all of us wish this was true and want this to become true, this is not actually in keeping with the province's actions for a very long time or in multiple recent tent cities. Um, the, so kind of four key reasons that that's not actually accurate right now. Firstly, um, the province says that they do not support evicting tent cities, but there is currently no location on provincial land in the entire province of British Columbia, as far as I'm aware, where the province will let people camp on a more than overnight basis. So uh, the province can't say that they are against displacement while refusing to provide a single location in the entire province where homeless people can be and not be displaced. They are still routinely using the tools of bylaw and police to move homeless people from their own property. Uh, a second point is that uh, the province is saying that they are uh, housing first and they're not displacing people, they're actually housing people. Um, but as Chris will discuss a little bit, often housing people just looks like shuffling the wait list, not like creating new stock. Yeah. So, so housing first. So when I, I looked at that language or when I thought about the language in the document, I, to me, it seems like a, an offscaping off again, that, that this is the language is created to, to end their responsibility or the province's responsibility at there. Uh, we know that uh, at Oppenheimer Park last year, um, they, they put a freeze on, on units within BC Housing and they collected enough units and then they basically scooped off the, the top of the, the tent city. And then the people that were left were the people that were had more difficult situations. They had pets, they had spouses, they had 
health conditions. Uh, and that's, that's what I, so that's what I worry as an outreach worker and, and, and you may worry about it as well is, is, so how do we actually get people in, into the housing if, if there's really nowhere to go? Um, I, I'm just, I'm just worried that, that uh, they're pointing us, pointing outreach workers and community-based organizations at, at tent cities and, and not giving them the, the resources to actually to do anything. And they're, and they're saying that it, to me, it's the, the housing first seem really seems like a way of just, just drawing the line and, and saying that we're not dealing with it. Um, and so there have been some instances where uh, the province has provided, um, you know, housing or hotels or shelter spaces in order to clear a tent city, um, but rarely are those actually new units. Uh, so the end result is that you have the same number of people who are homeless in a community at the end of displacement. Um, the province can say that it was kind of a, quote, ethical decampment because people were put inside. But if they've done that, either by forcing people into housing uh, conditions that people don't want, which is something we'll discuss a bit later, or simply by um, shuffling the wait list, that's not really against displacement. That's still prioritizing getting rid of tent cities over actually meeting people's housing needs. Um, the province has also actively supported evictions where no housing is available, um, including through court cases. So in Saanich, BC, the province actually uh, was in court along with the district of Saanich, arguing to evict everybody from that tent city. Um, they went on record doing that, even though there was no housing plan in place, and that was quite recent. Uh, even more recently, uh, around Crab Park tent city, uh, while the port was the one who brought the application, um, uh, the, the province through BC Housing, which is a Crown Corporation, filed um, an affidavit uh, in support of the eviction, which made it sound like there was enough emergency housing for people, even though everybody who lives and works here knows that that's not true. And the judge actually relied on that affidavit as part of his reason for evicting everyone. Um, and also, there's multiple cases where the province has been in court actively arguing to limit the interpretation of the Canadian Charter of Rights. So very briefly, Section 7 kind of protects people's rights to health and safety. Um, multiple government lawyers, including, including provincial lawyers, have gone to court on tent city cases to argue that Section 7 of the Charter should not include a right to housing. So it's hard to say that you are against displacement when you go into court to specifically convince judges to not expand the rights of people who are currently unsheltered and to undermine your own legal obligation to provide housing going forward. Um, a really um, something that was in the webinar last week that I thought was important to draw particular attention to is in um, arguing that they were housing first, uh, the province showed this photo of three people um, that were housed out of Camp Nemegan. So that was the Saanich tent city. Um, and just to tell a little bit about what actually happened with regards to that tent city, uh, Chrissy, who helped run that camp, uh, I thought you could talk a little bit about um, where did people go when they were evicted from Camp Nemegan? Um I think a lot of people ended up just going back to the streets or SRO surfing. 
And then there were a few that wanted to try and remain together. So we, I tried to create a plan that would allow that to happen. And we went to a few different sites, one um, where we ensured we were away from the roadway and had created sort of a safety plan to keep people safe. And the province, though, said they'd give us warning, did not. Um, and we woke up to 100 police around us and moved us on. And it seemed to be just a cat and mouse game around the CRD um, through a number of placements. And there were people that weren't fitting into the shelter in the no options that were given to people. So our concern was the safety of people like the people in the picture who couldn't be supported and who were couples and who didn't feel safe in some of the shelter options and that they couldn't be together. So um, out of necessity of holding up our most vulnerable, we moved around and were were chased, we went to Woodwind Farms, which is owned by BC Housing, and um, were arrested. One of these people was arrested. I guess just to go back, earlier on, BC Housing did come up with one hotel room for two people out of the four people with disabilities that were most vulnerable, and they had to decide amongst themselves who needed the room the most. And there was one that seemed to be struggling more than the other. And the other couple very graciously gave up their spot and said they felt that the other couple needed it more than they did. But how is that a government's position to put people with disabilities to decide amongst themselves who was going to get to like that space for two people out of the four disabled people. Is that not something that like people who are supporting them should be giving them a firm answer? (laughs) This is what we can do for you rather than making them choose amongst themselves. And eventually they were housed, but I don't believe it was because it was something that, the province wanted to do. It was just something that their image was in the public eye and media really took a liking to them and it changed the face of homelessness. And so a house was acquired and was given to one of the housing organizations and they housed the four people with disabilities that were most vulnerable. And um, one of the other people that they housed um, ended up needing medical services, which he wasn't given. And I was asked um, one day to ensure that he had more health services provided and then was told the next day that he passed. So it's not as though they, their housing process actually kept people safe. And so this is, you were saying, um, about six people total from everyone evicted from Camp Nanigans ended yes. up being provided housing. Yes. So about how many people were evicted to nowhere? Room 35. Okay. Um, so it's just um, like a point of caution 
when we're using people's photos to say that the province is housing first, and that's, you know, three of six people who are housed out of over 100 people who were evicted, including by the province's lawyers, uh, to no housing options. And um, people who actually tried to form a second tent city after they were evicted from the first park were on provincial land, and Minister Selena uh, Robinson specifically supported um, them all being evicted from that second tent city. And this is pretty recent. And then finally, these guidelines themselves are not, uh, as we've already stated, are not firmly against displacement. Uh, so one thing we wanted to discuss uh, briefly is that, um, and Chris touched on this earlier, in using the language of housing first, um, sometimes that can be framed in a way of saying, well, we can't support tent cities because we want housing. Or I've had uh, government actors you know, say things like, uh, well, we don't want people living in tents, as if people who fight to support tent cities are doing it because they prefer tents to housing. Um, and that's not accurate. Um, so, Chris, what are some ways in which um, it's possible to be housing first, but also support tent cities? I, I think it's really important to, to include housing first or tent cities in, in the housing first uh, programs or, or guidelines. I, I think that all of us are really doing what we can or what's available to us. We're, we're looking at the housing stock, we're looking at community supports. Uh, and I, I think those sorts of formulas should be included in the guide. Uh, I mean, it, it spells out that outreach uh, and groups may go in there. Um, I, I'm thinking about myths and, and that uh, so if you support a, a homeless camp or or tent cities that you're supporting homeless, uh, a lot of people use use that statement to, to get out of being or being able to support people in in tent cities. And it, it's just 100 percent wrong. I, I, I think that we really need to to get into tent cities and encampments and and do everything that we can and anything and everything. And, and that's sort of what what uh, housing first would would mean to me to me I think um, yeah I, I I think that's all all we can do uh, until until we actually build build houses or create communities or open up spaces for people or or create uh, things like uh, uh, income or and housing then we have to figure out how we can support people. And I think all of us have heard examples where uh, government says that the need to build housing is the reason that they can't provide resources to tent cities, but we're decades into a, a homelessness crisis. So that argument doesn't really fly. Um, and even in the most um, kind of the, the national housing strategy um, that came out from the feds last year, you know, their goal was to cut chronic homelessness by 50% within the decade. I, I think we all know it's extremely unlikely that will actually happen. Um, so the presumption in government policy right now is that many people will remain homeless for the rest of their lives. So um, to say that we can't support people in tent cities because we're too busy building housing is essentially to say that we believe that we only have to help people once they're housed and we can just ignore people who will be homeless for the rest of um, their lives. Chrissy? 
I just think this is a time that we could really push for either piloting urban reserves um, for Indigenous people and allies or in places that don't have people that can step forward from the community, creating more rep Canadian refugee style camps that are Indigenous led or through an Indigenous lens, peer involved, community supported through volunteers and donations, and then government enhanced through resources. And for the first time at Strathcona, those are things that some of the stakeholders are considering. And we currently have nurses on site um, once, three times a day, acupuncturists, a whole entire medical team, um, laundry outreach services, um, and so many volunteers that the government stakeholders are looking at what they can enhance rather than come in and manage because they realize that there is a real amount of community resources that are already in that camp um, without any type of government funding. And so if those things could be recreated and blueprinted so that other municipalities could use those, as a way to create something immediate. We can send refugee dollars across the world and say that it's temporary measures until that infrastructure and housing is built, but we can't do that here in Canada. I think that, it, that goes completely against what Canada should stand for and doesn't, but our culture doesn't allow us to, and that's why our intensities continue to push on. I wanted to jump into, and, and I'm I'm thinking about other foundational myths and and that that I've heard kind of like uh, for First Nations people that that education is free and and all kinds of stuff are are paid for, and and so what I'm what I'm wondering is is so if I'm if we're community organizations or we're people that are trying to actively solve homelessness and, and we're in BC. I'm trying to think of uh, there, that BC is full of land, eh? no matter where you are, if you're in Prince George or Terrace or, or Smithers, if you look out that that there is a designation of crown land out there. And maybe that we should try to imagine that that there could be First Nations land authorities that would be able to open up granting processes to people that don't have a lot of money or resources or such as our own people, but it could be for everybody. But I, I'm just thinking it, it we're, we're nothing but crown land uh, out there. And uh, it would be great if communities would be able to share that land with the homeless First Nations people that are there and, mm -hmm. and that could be a system solution. Thank you, Chris. Um, and just to follow up on a point that Chrissy just made, um, I think the point around, you know, that Canada is providing um, supports to new refugees or to other countries, the point is not that there is a war uh, over funds. Um, this isn't kind of a race to, bottom, to the bottom between Canadian homeless people and refugees. The point is that um, we actually have the means to care for people and we have the means to care for more people when we decide it's the principal thing to do. But currently and for a very, very long time, 
our um, every level of government has decided that it's okay not to care for people who are currently homeless. So this isn't about diverting funds from another vulnerable group. It's about pointing out um, that this is an ideology. Um, this is this that is the reason that we are here. Uh, I'm gonna kind of because I want to make sure we have time to get to best practices and focus on those. So um, I'm gonna just skim through this slide. Um, this is uh, at page three of the guidelines. It's um, the homeless camp response process map. Um, so a few things to draw attention to here. Um, firstly, if you go to the very, um, the, the kind of first square on this page, you'll say that first responses to encampment are standard local outreach and land management. Um, so land management, as far as I can tell, is just a euphemism for eviction. Uh, land management speaks to land ownership. It speaks to invoking the Trespass Act um, and removing people from property. So just another example of how these guidelines are not actually against displacement. Uh, and standard local outreach is only as good as the resources available. So uh, given the current reality where there generally isn't any housing, standard local outreach looks like uh, connecting with people, telling them about shelters they know that already exist and that they may not want to live in or be able to live in. Um, you know, putting people on new wait lists, having them fill out vulnerability assessment tools that don't get them into anywhere. So again, that's only as helpful as um, the, the resources in your community. Um, if you go to the next box about early alert and when to kind of bring in bigger actors, uh, it says that these are triggered when regular mechanisms such as outreach or enforcement are not effective or appropriate. Um, and so again, um, including enforcement, as one of the earliest responses, uh, giving no clarity to government or um, other community stakeholders about when um, enforcement is or isn't uh, appropriate. Um, similarly, when you know using quote land management is or isn't appropriate. Uh, in terms of the possible triggers for engaging higher levels of government, um, if you look at the box on the right, uh, this, these are literally every tent city. So um, there's, you know, beyond normal slash legal use of land. Well, given that every level of government has made it illegal for homeless people to camp on a more than overnight basis, then there is always more than normal uses of land. But that's because government has taken the position that it is illegal. So we're kind of stuck in a circle there. Um, there always are safety, fire and health risk issues because being homeless is fundamentally unsafe. Uh, multiple tents and structures. That's any situation where a person isn't camping alone. Um, high profile or protest. Um, I feel like this is just a euphemism for a successful tent city that has resisted enforcement and managed to exist more than a few days. So it's kind of giving a pejorative connotation to where homeless people have successfully come together to protect each other and to resist initial eviction. Uh, legal issues we've already talked about. Uh, youth and vulnerable people, of course, there's vulnerable people in every tent city. And entrenchment, uh, again, that's a big term, and it just sounds like another situation where uh, homeless people have managed to be somewhere more than a few days. And then using a really negative, like a term that has negative connotations, uh, it's not entrenchment, it's uh, building community and creating stability. If you kind of go down the flow chart uh, on the rest of that page, um, you'll see that it doesn't actually clearly tell local government or service providers what they're supposed to do. It kind of tells you who you're supposed to talk to. It's kind of a how to have a meeting document. Uh, it alludes to 
housing options and to site support. But um, in our experience, there generally are no housing options and site supports are not actually paid for. So um, it's not helpful to local government and outreach if they're not actually going to be resourced to provide these things when they engage. And um, a little later in the guidelines, they speak specifically to creating task forces um, focused on um, homeless response group or task forces. Uh, and they specifically talk about HART in Victoria. Um, and Chrissy, I was wondering if you could talk a bit about kind of the limitations of uh, homeless response task forces. I think if there is community engagement in a task force, it has the potential of being successful, but that's only when stakeholders choose to be engaged, which isn't very often. And I find out of all of the different encampments that I've supported or co-founded, except for one, um, which was sort of abnormal in super intensity where there was community engagement um, from a community policing standpoint and then from a fire um, perspective that came from a deputy fire chief who was Métis himself so understood some of um, the Indigenous culture and support that was created from the fire um, department there and engagement in a different way that utilizing that process as something as a way to manage things could be risky. And even in Victoria, I've seen a change from a community policing inspector who came from a community policing um, background to one that comes from a more military like corporal punishment rather than community placing perspective. Um, but I have hopes that maybe enhancing things like that with, again, some more real sort of peer involvement. And I think SOLID does have some input with that. So I think it's a good model that could be looked at, but definitely needs more community engagement. And the risks of not having those are what you see at Oppenheimer and through other municipalities that refuse to engage to be a part of the conversation of how to keep people safe. We've created task forces at other tent cities where fire and police refuse to be a part of the conversation and through Oppenheimer to Crab Park to Strathcona, for the first time, some fire department staff are choosing to come and talk to us about how we can create some best practices to keep people as safe as possible. And can they help check and refill our fire extinguishers, which is something that they refuse to do. So it's a choice in how people can choose to engage or they can choose not to. So things that stakeholders and advocates and people that work within government could do is maybe encourage to be those liaisons because sometimes homeless people aren't able to engage on that level and you could really advocate and support a conversation between people of how can we keep people the safest and 
become more allies that way rather than people that are helping enforce displacement. Um, thank you, Chrissy. And I know a few things that um, other things that Chrissy has mentioned to me in the past and that she's touched on here is um, your task force, uh, you know, as she's kind of said, it has to be about supporting people. It has to be about centering what people are actually asking for from the camp. Um, that shouldn't a task force is shouldn't be about managing and enforcing against people, and um, it should be about actively uh, advocating to provide resources. Uh, the task force can only be as helpful as the resources that it's actually in a position to provide to people. Uh, otherwise, again, it just can become another tool of surveillance and information gathering about people um, for no particular reason. Uh, Chris, as somebody who has um, done outreach into tent cities, including with um, Western Aboriginal harm reduction, did you find that these this kind of flow chart um, did, gave you kind of any helpful information on how to engage with tent cities? Um, so the flow chart doesn't really help so much. I, I believe in that. I mean, we we were on site spending time in Oppenheimer Park and in tent cities before before health, the housing authorities and and before outreach, uh, other outreach workers. And and to me, it's like, what is the what are, just what is it that we're triggering here? To me, it's not really clear what we're are we triggering that we're going to get people together and get support and get resources and, and get housing, or, or are we triggering the displacement of, of homeless people or, or pushing them around? Uh, the 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 chart doesn't really say specifically how how people or outreach engages. It doesn't say that that we actively look for food for people, that we're looking for socks, uh, blankets, tents, water, uh, soap. Uh, it doesn't really reflect the, the need of, of people and, and what what we need to get to people. Um, so I don't really find it so, so helpful. Okay. Thank you. Um, so a few other things specifically from the guidelines, and then we'll spend some time on better best practices. Um, there's a big section in here on fire and safety. Um, you know, there's some good basic protocols in here around, you know, distancing tents. Um, there's also some comments about, you know, ensuring people are using fire safe things such as fire safe tarps. Um, just something to remember, people can't afford fire safe tarps, so we can't take what people have. if We're not going to provide them with an alternative. Um, but um, kind of the main uh, issue that we all noticed here is that um, these guidelines basically ban the use of any intent um, warming devices. Uh, so if you go through their list, there's basically nothing that people, actually there is nothing that uh, people would be allowed to use to stay warm in their tents. Um, Chris, I'm wondering if you can talk about um, why that's not possible for people. Yeah, so af after I read the guidelines, so I noticed about the fire part of it, or to me it, that stands out, it, it's, it was written by a fire, fire suppression personnel somewhere, and it doesn't really take into, or doesn't really consider that people, when they're cold, they need to stay warm. Uh, it doesn't, we're in Canada where it's wet and there's snow on in the ground a good chunk of the time. 
uh, it doesn't take an effect that uh, you need heat or, or fire to cook a, cook a meal even. Uh, so, so those two things, uh, fire and to me, uh, like last year at this, we were going to at Oppenheimer Park and we were talking about fire and safety and, and it was in the summer and, and I brought up and it's about this and it's the same now is, is that winter is coming and we know that if we don't get uh, or have a means to keep people warm and keep them fed, that they're going to have candles, they're going to have propane, they're going to, and there's going to be fires and there's no way around that. So, so just ignoring that, that people need, uh, just ignoring that they, they need to stay warm isn't going to be an option. Right? So if we're considering fire and safety, maybe we should consider that you, we need fire to stay alive and without it, that we're going to die. So yeah, and um, something that's come up in the court context is that um, it's become increasingly common for governments to rely upon fire safety and specifically on affidavits from um, members of fire departments in order to evict tent cities. But the end result is that people just bring themselves and those fire safety hazards with them to wherever they go. But now they're on their own and there's no one there with fire extinguishers um, to help respond. If there's a fire, there's no one there to call 911 if there is a fire. So it puts people at more risk. Um, in the name of supposed safety, um, as long as the position of fire departments is a zero tolerance for any kind of warming devices, then people will not comply because they cannot comply. Um, and it's not enough to tell people just to use a blanket. People get wet um, and then they can't get dry and then they get hypothermia. Um, so we're, we're not balancing people's safety concerns here. Um, Another thing that isn't mentioned uh, in this portion of the guidelines is anything to do with sacred fires. Um, and Chrissy, if you can talk a bit about that. I think just the fact that they refuse to acknowledge them, but they sometimes refuse to take them away or make them legal. The current fire code that we have at Strathcona says that there's no fires allowed, but both the fire chief and the people that have come down have said that the sacred fire is fine. We have enough fire extinguishers. We have a good safety plan and have even allowed the conversation that we'll have a second ceremonial um, fire that we can light for food burnings or what have you. Um, so they'll be tolerated, but not actually put in place of, their fire order and saying no fires except for these ones that we've agreed to, or even cooking facilities like the kitchen. We have propane and an entire kitchen that they've looked at and thought was an amazing setup. And that again, we were fire compliant as much as you can be in a place like that. And that they're going to tolerate the kitchen and the propane use and the propane tanks and everything else that's there, but they're not actually going to include that in an exception in their fire order. Um, so if you don't create ways to incorporate being, people being able to be safe within a community, it just makes everything illegal and a reason to take it down. And the final point here, um, around we need a harm reduction approach to 
uh, fire safety. Um, I think just something that um, I've experienced advocating in tent cities that is, is that members of fire departments, they, they come from a purely fire safety perspective. They don't have a harm reduction perspective. They don't have perspective of balancing fire safety with other kinds of safety. And something that people who are doing outreach and advocacy in these spaces can do is specifically to come along um, uh, folks in those camps and be part of explaining to fire departments why their approach to tent cities is actually putting people at more risk and why it's dangerous for fire departments to push to close tent cities in the name of safety. Um, when the net result is that people are less safe. I'm going to skim through this slide. Um, at the kind of bottom of page six, uh, the guidelines list a number. Uh, the guidelines uh, list a number of factors concerning vulnerable groups and safety. Um, the guidelines don't provide any clarity on why these uh, things are being listed. Um, you know, are they supposed to be reasons to evict? Are they supposed to be reasons to provide resources? Um, what is this information about? So the first part uh, seems like these are a list of reasons maybe to evict a tent city uh, that have to do with site safety. So they talk about proximity to roads or sidewalks or places with busy traffic. Um, it's hard to understand how being close to a sidewalk is supposedly a safety risk for people in a tent city. Even when it comes to being close to a road, um, this kind of reads like a list of excuses the province has relied upon in the past to evict people. That was actually part of the argument around uh, Camp Nanigans and the camp that came after it. Um, the thing to remember here is that these kinds of safety concerns um, are never a reason to evict unless uh, the government is actually working with people to find a meaningful, accessible alternative location. If we are using the existence of something like a large tree to um, evict everyone supposedly for their safety, but we are not working with people to say where else they should be, then it's not about safety. It's about eviction and it's about justifying eviction. And right now, um, there is always a reason to evict in the supposed name of safety. And there is never um, a place where people are told that they can be. So we need to keep pushing back against that. I'm going to keep going just because we're running low on time. Um, the other point under vulnerable groups and safety is um, listing a whole bunch of different categories of people who are vulnerable, uh, including uh, women at risk of violence, Indigenous people, seniors, LGBTQ2S, uh, people with disabilities, opioid users. Again, there's no real clarity on why, um, how these factors are supposed to be used. Is the presence of these people a reason to evict? Is it to provide support. Uh, it's notable that the only kind of concrete action mentioned is alerting MCFD in, in the case of youth. So the only kind of suggestion for what to do involves in, engaging a government ministry with a long history um, that's very colonial, especially with in relation to Indigenous people and their families. Um, Chris, what is the problem with kind of collecting this data without a clear purpose? Yes. So basically, I, I, I was a little bit worried as, as a First Nations person. Uh, I, I worry that we're labeling people, that uh, we're, we're creating, we're putting people in boxes, drug user boxes, First Nation boxes, or, or whatever box we want to create. But it's not really giving any kind of, it's not saying that we're, they're going to provide extra resources for those First Nations people or, or whatever. Uh, box we were going to create. Uh, 
and it to me it seems like it, it kind of like the, the the police street checks when they they stop you and they're starting to create create uh, data about people that uh, and I just don't think that they really have any business collecting uh, information about people so it just, it just seems like that we're we're creating system biases when in some some ways I mean it can be helpful if if we're going to attach some resources to it, but uh, since it doesn't seem like we are, it just seems like uh, this paper is inviting people to go out and, and help other people without really spelling out how how the how resources follow those projects. And Chrissy, you wanted to talk a little bit about NCFD specifically around tent cities. I just think it's utilized as a space to ensure that it's not a way that kids can should ever be a part of Tent City, but sometimes it's safer than where they currently are at. And again, just depending on the task force and the local ministry's position on it, on a provincial basis, usually it's no children in Tent City for no reason ever, which puts the community at risk if they allow any type of youth within their Tent City. And with actual engagement at Super Intensity, we had two youth, one 16 who was in care of MCFD and a 17-year-old from out of province that was agreed to be ministry involved in checking in social workers that came on site on a regular basis and checked on the kids. And it was way different than any of the other places that we've been where there's just been a complete disengagement from any type of services. And now that MCFD is involved with kids up until they're 24, even when we've reached out from Oppenheimer to Crab Park to even Strathcona, there are 19, 20, 21, 22-year-olds that should still be accessing MCFD services, but nobody's come to the table. So I've reached out and asked MCFD to provide who in Vancouver region I would need to talk to um, from an Aboriginal organization or non-Indigenous organization, and there's been no response. Um, so the last point under vulnerable groups and safety uh, says we're imminent risks are present in collaboration with service providers, local police and fire departments, provincial agencies, and if appropriate, enforce existing bylaws and policies to ensure safety measures can be achieved. So again, um, there are always imminent risks because being homeless is fundamentally unsafe. Uh, and depending on how you read this, it basically um, it bypasses providing resources and jumps straight to enforcement. Uh, in order to, quote, achieve safety. So if there's one thing you take away from this webinar today, it's that uh, you don't need to enforce safety, you need to resource safety. Um, mm -hmm. We should not be using bylaws and enforcement to, quote, make people safe. If people are not safe in 10 cities, it's because they have not been resourced to be safe. And that is where uh, the focus should go. Okay, so, um, Homelessness is with us for the foreseeable future, um, even in the best case scenario. So uh, in so much as these guidelines have some inadequacies, what would a truly housing first human rights based and decolonial approach to tent cities look like? 
Um, there's a document called the National Protocol for Homeless Encampments in Canada, uh, which is a good starting point, um, which is included in the handouts. Um, and then we're going to go through uh, a few kind of a few best practices that we've pulled together. Just to be really clear, this is just the beginnings of a response. This isn't comprehensive. This isn't uh, every uh, homeless person's perspective. And um, given that last week the province said that the next stage um, on these guidelines was to do kind of genuine engagement with people with lived experience, uh, hopefully there'll be a possibility to actually fund people to provide their expertise on these issues. Um, so first point um, in terms of better best practices regarding tent cities is that they should be Indigenous led or led through an Indigenous lens. Chrissy, can you say a little bit about what that means? I think just changing the current colonial perspective of governance, the tent cities need to be managed rather than people need to be supported and resourced um, in the communities that they've already created is something that can be done not from this colonial perspective. So if there isn't Indigenous people to lead it, just changing it to an Indigenous lens that's more inclusive rather than exclusive colonial perspective is something that creates the ability to allow every camp to be different and the needs of each community is going to be different. What Vancouver needs will be different than Terrace versus Dawson Creek. So we need to really partner with our people that are currently supporting our community where they're at. And that's really the only way that we can create this oppressive process of management and we've currently got nurses and all of these other support services on site without government resources and for communities that don't have those resources if those were actually resourced in every community it would be amazing to see how stable people would become we've got people that are getting off drugs without safe supply on their own because they've stabilized and have somewhere safe to be so that's what we need to work towards, not just this colonial perspective of management. Um, so it kind of covers uh, the second part of centering people with lived experience as well. Um, so yeah, don't come into a tent city presuming you know what people need. Um, you need to speak with people, especially people who are at the intersection of multiple oppressions and let them guide the conversation of what supporting them looks like. Um, Chris, what does it look like to pay peers and peer-led organizations and why is that important in tent cities? Great. So this is probably my favorite aspect of tent cities uh, because I work with organizations and and uh, and it talks or speaks a little bit to incorporating people that are homeless into a family that, that doesn't exist yet. Eh? So uh, WARS, uh, the Western Aboriginal Harm Reduction Society is, is a group in the downtown east side that does support group meetings, uh, sharing circles, uh, outreach in, in the alleys and in the parks. Uh, we were doing cleaning and, and peer support 
uh, at Oppenheimer Park. And so that's sort of the, the, the thing is, is that we create that sense of family and we go and uh, we talk to the tent city person and we kind of incorporate them into what we do and, and make them part of us, which uh, leads to successful health outcomes and or better health for people and better support. Um, yeah, so it says there, are you the right organization for this contract? Uh, for people who work in outreach, uh, government comes to you and asks you to do outreach into a tent city. Pause. Think about the fact, are you actually the right organization to do that? Is there a peer-led organization that has better relationships or should be funded to do that work? Um, connected to that, um, provide the support requested. Do not impose your help. Um, so going speaking to something we've mentioned many times here, are you actually in a position to provide resources and support or are you just in the tent city to gather data about people and possibly data that's going to be used to evict people or to involve authorities in a way that is harmful? Um, if you come into a tent city space and people don't want to work with you, ask yourself, ask your organization, why don't people trust us? Um, has your organization actually worked to address white supremacy within your organization? Um, racism that is embodied in your organization? Is your organization anti-substance user and condescending? If people don't want to work with you, there's probably a reason for it. And you need to be honest about that and not condescending. Um, the next piece is to resist carceral managed camps. So this is, again, something that's come up several times. Um, supporting tent cities does not look like policing tent cities, does not look like managing them. It looks like supporting people who are doing their best to protect their own health and safety during a dire lack of resources. Um, so be very careful that you do not participate in breaching people's privacy and going through their homes without their permission um, in acting as security at the gate uh, and policing when people come and go. Uh, you have to be careful about that. Uh, in Surrey, we saw with 135A, we saw a situation where homeless people were literally being picked up by police from other places in the community and dropped off at the tent city. Um, don't participate in a tent city becoming a forced encampment and the only space people are allowed to be. Support it for the people who need it and who rely upon it and for whom it is safe for, but recognize that people need, during the crisis of homelessness, people may need to be in other places as well. Um, there is no one size fits all. Um, a few more points to make sure we get through these before 1130. Um, so number six, take a harm reduction approach. So obviously this applies to substance use uh, and supporting, you know, many tent cities are basically operating as overdose prevention sites. But as we've already discussed, this also involves things like fire safety. Um, understand that it is inherently unsafe to be homeless. We cannot hold people to unmanageable standards. Uh, and to the extent people are not following Safety requirements, recognize this isn't non-compliance, this is a lack of resources. So your job in these spaces is to find out why it is not possible for people to follow the standards being set for them and advocate for their needs to be met and also advocate for those standards to be relaxed when they're simply unfair. Um, Chris, briefly, uh, resisting participating in decampment. So kind of going back to this issue of um, where resource providers um, hold rooms yeah, so so just resist holding on to rooms and beds uh, by by holding on to rooms and beds and not giving them to the public. You're putting more people at risk. 
Uh, we know that uh, we often worry that uh, sometimes if you're an organization or a person that's out there doing work in the community and, and you provide an affidavit, um, we have to be very careful that we're not helping them to, to evict people. Yeah, and um, there's been a number of examples where like shelter providers, for example, have held beds empty, even while there's inadequate shelter beds in their community. And then the government relies on that saying, oh, there's 20 beds here uh, as a reason to evict a tent city of 20 people. But what you're doing in that case is you're participating in kind of a performance of, quote, ethical decampment. There's no new housing stock. You've actually just helped remove an outdoor space where people were at least somewhat safer than being constantly displaced. And at the end of the day, there's just as many homeless people in your community. Uh, and the last point here is um, push for adequate and accessible housing. So around every tent city, there's this narrative that government relies on of accusing people of being uh, housing resistant, of being too picky, of rejecting the housing they're offered. Um, people are actually right to resist shelter-based and over-policed housing options. Uh, the feds have recently recognized that the right to adequate housing uh, as defined in international law and uh, kind of on the right hand side there, you can see the right to adequate housing is a fulsome definition. It's um, housing with RTA protections um, that's habitable, that's culturally adequate. This is not what people are being offered. So um, don't be part of the narrative of saying that people are being too picky or that they should take the housing that you are a part of offering when it doesn't actually meet these standards. Um, I wanted to give Chrissy some time to comment on the various reasons people um, don't accept housing on offer. Can you give maybe two examples given we're at five minutes? Yeah, um, I was saying the lack of supports in supportive housing, um, where you see 330 deaths in SROs um, over the last number of years here in Vancouver. Just shows that this housing first approach means that they've never incorporated anything second and that they will never have to offer any type of wraparound support services around individuals in that housing because they're always working on more housing so they don't actually have to also provide any type of supports um, which are killing our people and then just the conditions of housing you can't enforce people having to live in shelter spaces that can put PTSD um, into full bloom, like almost psychosis and expect or places that are bug infested or rat infested or falling apart um, as places that you were seen as housing resistant or places that you're not actually kept safe by housing organizations that are failing to provide all of the safety measures that are used to close tent cities down, but SROs are still in existence when the violence and fires and safety risks happen in housing each and every day, as well as any other apartment building or condo that has a fire. Thank you. So in the meantime, last slide here, um, a rights-based approach to tent city means protecting people's rights safeguard their own rights and safety to the fullest extent possible in the absence of access to safe, affordable, and adequate housing. Um, so as long as we have a homelessness crisis and as long as the province is not actually stepping in to meet people's 
needs or then the least we can do is help defend people's rights to protect their own needs. And that's what people in tent cities are often desperately trying to do. And what we're asking people who are um, on this call and working in tent cities is to help people to do that and to do it in a way that's supportive and resourcing and not managerial and enforcement based. Um, so I know we have a little time for questions, but I'm not sure if uh, we can go past 1130 on the dot. So if we can't, thank you so much. And I hope um, this presentation was helpful and we are gonna work on kind of providing uh, more fulsome feedback in, into the process. Thank you, Anna. And thank you, Chrissy. And thank you, Chris. Um, I'm a little bit speechless. Uh, there's so much here. Um, there's challenge, there's uh, story, there's basically a rethink of many terms and a lot of language that a lot of us in the sector use without even thinking about what it means and whether it's a tool of support or oppression. And so I just want to say thank you with a lot of gratitude for um, being willing to speak about it today. Uh, uh, there's a couple minutes here if anybody has any questions um, while people are formulating them. I just want to say that uh, we will have, um, we didn't include the slideshow as a PDF um, just for timing reasons, but we will have that available for you up on our website or you can email us to get a copy of that because there's a lot of incredibly important and uh, useful information in there. Um yeah, are there any last comments from from any of you, our amazing panelists today, that you want to say to to our members, to our people who are um, maybe working through their own biases or thinking about ways to better support or resist or engage with um, our policies and our practices? Um, well. Thanks for inviting me uh, to be part of this. Uh, I, 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 I kind of like where it's going. Uh, I, I like that we have a, a chance to talk about it. I, I, I worry that it seems a little bit negative uh, and I don't always criticize or I'm not a very good criticizer. <laughs> uh, and I, I just hope that uh, it, we can get to a point where where things are more equitable for everybody. Uh, I'm just thinking about that we're in all in different locations and we're all trying to do what we can. Uh, to me, the biggest thing that I worry about is is that the province has claimed uh, that they are responsible for tent lit uh, encampments, tent cities, and homeless people, but it doesn't really give it. It doesn't really help people. Mm -hmm. And how can you be a real ally? I think there's many different ways of being allies. I think that there are many that are on the front lines, but I think it's important to recognize that there's going to be unnamed people within all levels of um, these places that tend to place rather than support. Um, that have been able to engage and change in very small government baby steps, which are giant steps for them, but not really for the people that are served, except for maybe in that individual location. And 
those are things that people can do is sometimes be those translators for the strength of encampments to some of the organizations that don't normally listen to the homeless people. And that's where I think the strength of Indigenous-led encampments is able to partner with community allies who then can be sort of those offers. And a lot of the people on the, listening to this call can choose to be allies rather than being these tools of oppression. And you can do it in by engaging within your local community of homeless people and ask, how can I help you rather than telling people how they can be managed. And that's where we've seen the biggest strengths of all different levels of people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and just um, one quick last thing. Um, I did want to name that I know many frontline workers are underpaid and traumatized and they're not adequately supported in their work. And unfortunately, I think what we see sometimes is that translates into people kind of, um, it can be cheaper and easier to violate people's rights. Uh, and so really under-resourced organizations, sometimes the way that they address their overwhelm is by taking it out on their clients. So just to name that, um, that, that that is the reality for a lot of frontline organizations. And we recognize that there can be a lack of resourcing for them to do their work well. And just to ask people that to respond to that, not by putting that on your clients and the people you work with, um, but by coming together with your fellow workers and um, pushing with management and with your government funders to resource you appropriately to do this work in a way that's actually equitable and dignified. Mm -hmm. And I, I asked permission to mention this, but um, actually the some of the people who wrote the guidelines have been on this call today. And they just wrote in to say that thank you for your thoughts and feedback on this resource. And they're looking forward to more conversation. Um, they are hoping to reach out to communities across the province. And they're um, very open to having you um, participate and get in touch with them. So I just want to mention that. Um, some of the authors of these guidelines have been have been listening to you today as well. I've got lists of names of people that are supporting homeless communities across the province from Dawson Creek, Port St. John, Prince Rupert, Terrace, George, Kamloops. Um, so if any of those regions actually want to talk to people who are currently um, supporting those homeless communities, I'm more than happy to give them the names and numbers of people in any one of those communities and thank, on the island. Thank you, Chrissy. All right. Well, I feel like we could have um, a very fulsome conversation going forward, but I just want to um, recognize that we are at our time today. Um, and so here's how you can get in touch with Pivot and Anna. And uh, if there are any ways that people want to connect with Chrissy and Chris, I'm uh, sure that Anna can connect to you is that okay to say yeah, that's that's fine and then yeah. i can ask chris, chris for kind of what kind of contacts they want to pass along yeah great okay the recording from today both in video and in our audio podcast format will be available in a couple of days up on our website as well as all of the handouts um that we mentioned today and the PowerPoint from today um, and if you need to get in touch with us um hsabc is 
Uh, we represent a lot of different organizations across the province, but one thing that we've been doing, especially since the pandemic has begun, is to try and facilitate these conversations with the hope that we can address um, homelessness, that we can uh, listen to the people that are experiencing it and provide bridges and connections for policymakers, uh, service organizations, and the people that they're impacting to work together to uh to, as you said so beautifully, not to enforce safety, but to resource safety. So thank you for being here, everyone. Please get in touch if you need to. If you have questions, uh, you can always put them in that survey that will pop up immediately after this is over. And um, I'm really looking forward to more uh, conversation and connection. And, and I just want to say once again, uh, Chrissy and Chris and Anna, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Take care, everybody. Stay safe, stay calm and take a break if you can. This is hard work uh, and we keep showing up and uh, HSABC wants to support you in that however we can. Take care, everyone. HSABC is a provincial, member-driven organization, and our mandate is to strengthen and unify services across BC that are addressing the needs of those experiencing homelessness. Right now, so many of our members, as well as their friends, families, colleagues, and clients, are facing unprecedented challenges, as well as a total change to our daily lives. And we're here to help support you on the front lines, however we can. You keep showing up, even in the most intense and difficult of circumstances, for the most vulnerable. Thank you for all the work you do, and for continuing to do it every day. Our website is hsa-bc.ca, and you can find COVID-19-specific resources for frontline and shelter workers, including handouts, posters, webinar video, news and health authority updates, and much more. You can also email us at info at hsa-bc.ca or find us on Twitter at underscore HSABC. Stay calm, stay safe, stay strong.